Hi there, and welcome to Emmanuel. This is our weekly teaching podcast. We hope that it encourages you to live a little bit more every day like Jesus taught us to. God bless you. Well, good morning. I remembered to turn the microphone on in the service. There you go. I uh, started out in the uh, first service by saying it's good to be back. Uh, I've, I've been up here a little bit less uh, lately, which is in my book, wonderful. Uh, but it's also good to be back. Uh, I've been also just uh, to give you a little bit of an update, a little bit of context. Uh, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time putting stuff on the podium today. You think I've never done it before? Anyway, uh, like Thelma said, my name's Micah, and a little bit of an update. Uh, we've been live streaming down in the youth area, which, for those of you who don't know what that means, uh, the teaching part of this uh, youth event goes live out over the internet. And so this morning, a, a little bit more relaxed. Because I shouldn't be viewing these numbers, because that wasn't the reason we started. The reason we started live streaming was I was out at Camp Pegwiak, and a good half of the camp told me that they don't go to church during the week. Uh, the teens did. And I said, well, why? Like, one week a year isn't enough. I said, well, there's either no church near me, or my parents won't let me go. So that's why we started live streaming, so that they could be part of something to do with Jesus throughout the year. And much to my surprise, the Lord's been using it, and I shouldn't look at these numbers, but we've got a couple of hundred people every week that's, that are watching, which means, no, 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 this isn't good, because that means every mistake I make not only goes live over the internet to the world, but it's permanently on record. So we are not live streaming this morning. I can make as many mistakes as I want. No, no. Uh, over the uh, well, let me let me start with this story. It happened a couple of nights ago. I was uh, trying to help my daughter fall asleep, uh, lying down beside her. Sleep wasn't coming to either of us. Uh, specifically, her were, was my main concern. But if I got a nap, I wasn't going to object. And so, if you've been in that situation, you know that your vocabulary is entirely limited to "shh." I love you. Be quiet. Shh, be quiet. Shh, for the love of shh. Uh, and that's, that's all you get to say. And so this was going on for a little while, uh, and she started to breathe in, which was a symbol that she was about to start talking about something that had nothing to do with falling asleep. Uh, so she started to breathe in, and I started to breathe in to say shh. When instead of telling a story, she says, Daddy, you're the best. Which caught me a little bit by surprise, because I was getting ready to say, Shh. So I said, what, what? You're the best, Daddy. Now, I don't know your story, but whether you are a parent or a spiritual parent, whether you've got the constant care of somebody or God has called you to pour into somebody's life, that's the message you hope to hear. Uh, that's the message that you hope to hear, that somehow you are aspiring to the very best version of what you've got. And in all of the weakness that you've got, and all the mess-ups, and all the foibles, and all the times that we trip and fall flat on our face, somehow in our mad stumbling towards Jesus, they get to see a little bit of that in us. Daddy, you're the best. 
Thank you, dear. And so is my stuffed pig. <laughs> and my stuffed bear. And all of my stuffies. And all my friends. And she proceeds to name about half the town. I don't think her words meant what I wanted to hear. But nonetheless, I aspire to someday represent what those words meant. And I think that's kind of the heartbeat for all of us. That at some point in our life, we will have made a kingdom impact. If you are trying to follow Jesus, you might phrase it that way. If you're just trying to get through life, you might phrase it, ah, that I'll leave a mark. That when they gather around us to put us in the ground for the last time, hopefully the first time, I don't know why I say it that way, but when they gather around us to put us in the ground, that we are surrounded by people that we've made a mark on, that, that we've left a positive light shining in their life, that somehow we, in our brokenness, in our mad stumbling towards Jesus, we've somehow carried something of the glory of God to the people who knew us. And despite all of our weaknesses and our brokennesses, as they gather around that hole in the ground, that they get to say, there goes a man or a woman of God. There goes somebody who loved me, who saw God's fingerprints on me. There's somebody who moved God's kingdom forward. Now there's some good stories to tell. I think that's the goal of all of our lives. That's the dream. We may not phrase it that way. You might phrase it a different way. But the ultimate hope is that we leave not just the world, but the ones that we love in a better state than when we arrived by the glory of God. Over the last few weeks, Thelma has had three words on the front of the bulletin. You shouldn't look at it right now because I had them taken off. Because I didn't realize I was going to continue in this theme. Uh, when they were, I don't know what you think my life is like, but I don't normally get to work in the message until like Friday. And so when this sermon goes to print on Thursday, it's too late for me to insert things. And so I, I had them put on the new graphics package. But I, I kind of wish now that I'd left those three words on the front. And let me tell you what they were. You can write them on the front if you want. Pretend that I was intelligent and planned ahead and just write them there. Forgiven, restored, called. That is, in a nutshell, a formula for the Christian life. That is, in a nutshell, the formula to live a life that leaves an impact on the people that we love, that points them towards Jesus. Because to be forgiven by Jesus means that you have at some point recognized your brokenness. And it may have taken a long time to understand just how broken. But you recognize your brokenness. It's one thing to say, oh no, I'm not perfect. It's another thing to recognize, no, there's something in me that despite the best of my intentions, I still hurt people. There's something in me that despite the very best of my intentions, I, I do the very thing I don't want to do. I think it's in Romans, Paul says, 
The thing I want to do, I do not do. I do the things I do not want to do. What a wicked man I am. Who will save me from this condition? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. Because we are broken. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm not talking broken in the sense of I stepped backwards and accidentally stepped on somebody's toe. I mean, I convince myself that I'm doing exactly the right thing and I hurt people. I don't want to. I think it's the same for you too. There is something in us that is selfish and quick to anger and if we were to hold it up in front of the mirror, ugly. And most of us see it. We might not talk about it. We might try and bury it. But most of us see that part of our life that we don't like. And at some point, we ask Jesus, please forgive us. And he comes in and he steps into that brokenness and does forgive us. And the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, begins a work of restoration. And it takes a long time. When I was a, well, it was before I was a kid. It was before I showed up on the scene. My dad, before he was married, bought a sports car. It wasn't like a Jaguar or a Ferrari. It wasn't even a, a Mustang or a Corvette. It was a 1973 fire engine red anemic Toyota Celica. I love that car. It sat, I, I don't quite, I can, I can barely remember riding in it as a small child. And then it got parked in behind one of our shop buildings. And it sat there for 15, 20 years. And the kids would play in it, and we'd yank the gear shift around, and we'd pump pedals that we had no idea what they did, and we'd leave the windows open during the winter, and the car went to pieces. Sometime in my junior high year, I have no idea why, but in my junior high years, Dad decided that we were going to rebuild it. And I'm not going to pretend that we worked on it every night. This isn't some TV series. I'm not sure we even worked on it every month. But we worked at it. And every piece in that car had to be worked on. The brake lines were replaced. The brake line holders were replaced. The steer, steel rims had to be sanded and repainted. The whole car's frame had to be rebuilt. Most of the bodywork was gone. It was all replaced. The upholstery had to be redone. The inside of the, like the roof had to be re, everything was redone. The transmission was pulled apart and rebuilt. I'm not even sure that dad didn't mill some of the transmission gears himself. Everything was rebuilt. Headlights were taken off and recrumped. Piece by piece, and it was actually ready for the end of my grade 12 year. Piece by piece, this car was restored to the way it was supposed to be. It's still an anemic little car, but I love it. I love it. Because it's this testimony of restoration. That God, and it, I'm now going to jump metaphors. But there's parts of your life that you didn't even realize were rusted out. The Holy Spirit begins working on and rebuilding. You didn't even realize you were broken that way. The Holy Spirit comes in and starts replacing. And slowly, over the course of the disciples' life, we become forgiven and restored. 
slowly over the course of a follower of Jesus' life, pieces of our life get replaced where sin had corroded, where selfishness had set in, where anger was a virtue. The Holy Spirit begins replacing those parts. It makes us look a little bit more like Jesus. And somewhere in that process, you discover what God's wired you for. Somewhere in that process, you discover a passion that never lets go of you, and you discover your calling. Somewhere you, you don't know why, but you love sleeping. Actually, nobody loves sleeping on concrete floors with the teenagers, but it gives you life for some reason. You don't know why, but you like leading small groups. You, you know, everybody else looks at you crazy, but if you can bless one more child in the nursery, or if you can, you can lead one more conversation at a house church, if you can help organize one more event, that means that people don't go hungry in another part of the world. Uh, if you can provide shelter to those who are lost, if you can provide chances for healing for those who are broken, you discover what God's called you for. And firing on all cylinders, you leave a mark that shapes eternity because of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Forgiven, restored, called. And what I want to talk about today is something that is in the air of our North American culture. It's the water that we swim in. That if we as disciples of Jesus Christ are not careful to excise it from our life, we'll destroy that formula. It will mar that opportunity to leave a mark. It will not allow you, it will prevent you from growing into being the person that God dreams of. The work of the Holy Spirit will be stunted by this if we do not work it out of our life. And we have to be aware of it because it is common. It is normative in North American culture. And it's unforgiveness. We are trained in our culture to keep lists of wrongs. We are trained to hold people to account for how they've wronged us. Our leaders hold grudges, and our political talk shows brag about how, oh yes, they were wronged 15 years ago, and now they're getting back at the... Our TV series, the popular ones, are all revenge plot lines. And the weird thing is that's got nothing to do with the way of Jesus. In fact, it's anathema. It's the opposite. It's multiplying by negative one, the way of Jesus. And it is so natural and easy to do, to keep a list, to keep a tally, sometimes for months, sometimes for decades. And we keep this list of wrongs, waiting for somebody to suddenly realize it and show up and apologize, waiting for an opportunity to kind of shove it in their face and say, look what you did, waiting for somehow for it to be made right. And it's weird, because that's what seems right to us, but that's not what we see in the Gospels. Jesus is teaching somewhere about the middle of Matthew. And he, he's just laid out this how to deal with a brother that's, that's sinning against you. 
And in verse 21, Peter shows up, and I can't... Depending on where you start, you have one of two opinions of Peter in this moment. Uh, If you're familiar with the story, you know this already. If you're not, let me just set up the context. What's about to happen is either Peter is trying to, like, make himself look puffed up and be, like, extra smart. Or Peter's coming into a situation hurt and broken and scarred by life and is asking an honest question of Jesus. Because what, what happens is shortly after, like in the next verse, after Jesus lays out the structure of how to deal with family that's hurting, Peter comes up and says, all right, Jesus, seriously now, how many times must I forgive a brother who sins against me? How many? Now, the right answer in the day, by the way, uh, the answer for all the religious officials was three Three times. After a family member, a brother, a sister, a father, whatever, after they sin against you three times, done. Cut them off. Not in the will. They don't come to Thanksgiving dinner. Done. Peter, maybe because he's trying to look like extra religious and holy, maybe because some of Jesus' teachings were starting to take root, Peter says, how many times? Like seven Now, before we go much further, let me ask you this question. How many times would you let weird Uncle Hendricks, I hope you don't have an Uncle Hendricks, how many times would you let Uncle Hendricks ruin Christmas before you stop inviting him over for Christmas? Now, let me see. He's done this the last five times. Even when I've warned him not to, I know how this is going. Maybe Hendricks will come over for Boxing Day. That he's not coming anymore for Christmas. How many times would Aunt Bertha be allowed to ruin Thanksgiving before they wouldn't? I'm sorry, we just, we forgot to call Andy. Sorry. Oops. We forgot to call forever. How many times for you? Look, in our culture, I don't think we're much different than the temple officials who said three. Peter, Peter said, look, seven? And I have a hunch it's coming out of a a situation of brokenness. We have a glimpse in a couple of different spots into Peter's life. Uh, We get to see Jesus raise his mother-in-law back from the dead. We know that Peter has a life outside walking around with the disciples. And I have a hunch when he says brother, he means brother. All right, Jesus, my little brother. He's got that knife between the ribs a few times. How many times do I need to forgive him? Seven? Jesus says, not seven. And he uses a a colloquialism, a a cultural saying, uh, uh, like a, a phrase that only... Look, if it was to be updated to East Coast Canada, it would be like this. No, no, Peter, not seven. 70 bajillion times. Like just all of the times. Until you're done and we put you in the ground, Peter, all of the times. Forgive him always. He's family. Forgive him. Now that is a hard teaching. And I got to pause here for a second. Because guys like me at the front of churches like this have throughout the years practiced radical insensitivity. And i got to admit, the, the English language isn't built 
for this kind of conversation. But let me try and be a little bit sensitive. I am not talking about abuse situations here. I'm talking about the normal, everyday hurts of life. Uncle Hendricks wants to show up and talk about American politics for some reason. I'm not talking about abusive situations. Abusive situations is something that I cannot fully understand, and I do not pretend to prescribe what should happen. But from those who deal with such situations, I understand this. That, and please forgive me if this is incredibly callous. That there is a difference between forgiving and putting yourself back within striking distance. If you've got somebody who's going to be abusive in whatever version that is, Jesus does not call you to walk back within that arc of influence. And, just like all of us, that scar, that wound, that mark, if it's left open and allowed to become infected and fester, will ruin the image of God that is growing in you. All situations. Forgiveness is more about, well, it's not more about, but it's as much about healing in here as it is releasing somebody from a list out there. Earlier on in Matthew, and maybe this is where Peter's question grows out of, Jesus is teaching, it's this incredible group of collection of teachings, and we in the church, we've started calling it the Sermon on the Mount. It's got this old name. You can find it in the Gospels, the book of Matthew, chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's this incredible teaching. And I, I want to just pause here and say, most Westerners take a look at the, the Sermon on the Mount and see a list of individual morals that we're supposed to ascribe to. And they are very different than our cultural morals, but they're like, ah, this is about Micah and how Micah should behave. I want to encourage you to take a look at it with an eye towards community. And when Jesus is teaching, he's describing, look, as the people of God gathered in this place, this is what we should look like. That it's not about Micah behaving so I'm in good with God. It's about all of us trying to live differently so that the kingdom of God takes root and emerges here. And in the middle of that, Jesus says something really radical. Matthew chapter 5, verse well, yeah, 43 and 46, or 43 to 46. He talks about loving your enemies. If you grew up in the church, I can almost guarantee that that phrase does not carry the impact that it should. I was talking with a, a friend of mine recently. We were just talking about this concept of loving your enemies. And I said, you know, I don't think I have ever heard a preacher stand in the front of the room and say, you should love ISIS. Because that's too far. People who behead Christians? Ooh. But that's exactly who Jesus meant. Look, in times of peace, when we love our enemies, we wind up in the court system. In times of war, when you love your enemy, you wind up shot. This is a radically countercultural teaching. Radically countercultural. We are called 
to love. As a follower of Jesus Christ, to put it a different way, you have no human enemies. Even people who want the worst for you, you are called to love. See, we as a culture are trained to go to battle with our opponents. You get into a a scrapping match on Facebook trying to get the last word in. Or you show up at a meeting and you try and figure out how to verbally arm wrestle your issue through. You gather supporters in back rooms at your workplace. Or you have the conversation with the family members so that we're all on the same page and birth it doesn't come this year. We're just going to accidentally do that on purpose. We're trained to do that, to, to plot and to go to war, to go to battle over that. But the way of Jesus is to show love, especially, especially to people who had identified themselves as our enemies. And this is where I quote a completely unchristian band. There's an alt-rock group called The Killers. First clue, they're not Christian, the name. They've got this song called All These Things That I've Done. And in the middle of it, there's this chant. You know, our culture trains us to go to war with those who oppose us. And there's this little marching chant in the middle of this song that's been kicking around my brain all week. I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier. Jesus is redeeming your soul. Jesus is shaping your soul. By the work of the Holy Spirit, you are being restored and called, and you are not a soldier to go to war against other human beings. We are called to show love. And if we don't do that, if we don't forgive those who we've got a long list against, we'll never fully look the way Jesus wants us to. So that's all well and good. But how do you actually do that? Especially when they're still sticking the knife between the ribs. Right? Have we all been there? I want to forgive this person. Ouch. I want ouch to forgive. Ouch this person. Will you stop it? Especially when the pain is still being inflicted. How do you forgive? I don't have any magic words. I've sat in teachings where the preachers are like, you do these three things, and then you will be forgiving them. I'm like, I've done that. I'm still angry. I still want to take a baseball club. What what do you do? I will tell you what God started doing in my life. I don't know what he wants to do in yours. The first thing I do, I start praying for them. I learned this from an old pastor a long time ago. I start praying for them. It's interesting, you know. I've told the teens many times that your emotions eventually follow what your brain decides. There's a lag between those two things, but they're connected. If I meditate on my anger and the wrong, if I worry that, then my emotions build over time. If I actively pray for those who I'm upset with, in fact, even if I I say words that I may not fully feel, God, would you cause good things to come in their life? God, would you cause healing to come in their life? God, where I hadn't been the one that's hurt them, would you cause... 
eventually my emotions start catching up with what my brain and my soul has decided. And I intentionally pray, especially for those that I'm irritated with. By the way, if you want me to pray for you, you don't have to irritate me. I will gladly pray for you anytime. The other thing that I try and do, and this is what God's been at work in my life. We're trained to reduce people to like good guys, bad guys. Right? We go to the movie theaters. There is a good guy. There is a bad guy. I don't like the bad guy. I like the good guy. Right? And then we go through life. Oh, that coworker in the next cubicle? Good guy. They, they, they sang happy birthday. I don't know. That other coworker? Bad guy. They told the boss what I did. Right? We're trained to categorize people. It's interesting. The people I've been irritated with, God's helped me see just how human and broken and loved they are. Start asking about their family and discover they've got a, a kid with cancer. Guess what? Nothing else matters. You got a, a somebody in the room that has a kid with cancer? <laughs> That's, I don't care what wrong that has gone on. I can pray for that. They've got a grandparent who doesn't recognize them anymore. And they're, they're trying to figure out how to do this Christian life. I, I try and discover the work of God in their life. One of the songs we sang in the first service, I think we're going to sing it here, talks about being these broken vessels. Paul talks about having this treasure in jars of clay. This glorious news that Jesus loves the world, that Jesus cares, that God wants healing and wholeness to come to this world, this glorious news being carried around in a broken jar like this. I try and see that glorious treasure in people. Because God does love that person. May not be pleased with their behavior. He is absolutely brokenhearted along with you about your injuries. But he still loves that person. and wants wholeness to come to them. I don't know for you the steps that will enable you to forgive those who have wronged you. And I'm not going to pretend that all injuries are the same. An insult at a meeting is radically different than abandonment by a father. Radically different. And I'm not going to pretend they're the same. But for me, those are the steps I take to start letting go of the list that I keep. Because there will be no end of injuries that I can add to the list. But I don't want to go to the grave as a guy with a long list. I want to go to the grave. I don't want to go to the grave. But when that day comes, I want to go there as a, a man my daughter can be proud of. As a brother that my Christian family can be proud of. I want to go as a son that God says, well done, good and faithful servant.
That's the goal of life. To be forgiven, restored, and to find our calling. And if we are a people that learn to let go of our lists, to let go of our injuries, to forgive what's been done wrong, we will move towards that dream of God for us. Let me pray. We're going to close in song. And then we're going to try and actually live that out outside of these four walls. Jesus, we are we are nowhere sufficient to do this on our own. To be honest, if it was just up to us, we would keep lists until our days are over. But Lord, we are people who have been forgiven, and we want to be a forgiving people. Lord, for those of us with really deep scars, would you please, even now, begin healing? For those of us with injuries that others don't know about, would you even now be sufficient? Lord, for those of us who have been locked up in bitterness for years, who have been deformed and marred by hatred and anger, would you please bring forgiveness into our lives, freedom into our lives? Would you release us from these chains that, frankly, God, some of them we even put on ourselves? Lord, where we are weak and incapable of doing this, would you please, Holy Spirit, make us strong. Call us back to repentance and prayer. Call us back into the habit and the discipline of forgiving, we pray. In your name, amen.